to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. In this episode, I have the joy of chatting with consulting and coaching psychologist, Dr. Gordon Spence. Gordon blends 20 years of academic experience with a highly pragmatic approach to support individuals and organizations to maximize their well-being and deliver sustainable performance. In his latest book, Get Moving, Keep Moving, Gordon explores why our motivation for physical activity declines over time and how becoming active again can help us age well. In this conversation, we discuss the three reasons why movement is so powerful, why we can often put movement in a too hard basket, how physical activity is a wonderful way to bolster our social connections and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Dr. Gordon Spence. Gordon, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks for having me along. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, Gordon, because you are recommended to me by two incredible thinkers, Travis Kemp and Susie Green. <laughs> when people like that say to talk to you, uh-huh. I'm talking to you and I'm really looking forward to this chat. Well, they're two wonderful old friends and colleagues of mine, so I'm, I'm rather flattered. So, Gordon, how did you get to where you are today? Tell us a little bit about your story. Okay, so in terms of what I'm doing right at the moment, what I'm currently most interested in, in is exploring fusions of psychology and exercise science, specifically as they relate to, to healthy ageing and how they support sustainable performance at work and in life. Now, that might sound really good, but pardon for, for thinking, well, what the hell does that mean? And for me, it kind of means two things, two related ideas. One of those related ideas is what I'm calling self-directed ageism, and the other idea is the notion of health activation and how it overcomes the limits of health promotion. So there's a whole lot to unpack there, and we've got a bit of time, so we can do that. So maybe I can just tell you a little bit about the story behind writing the book, which will give you that flavour. So the story behind the book that I've just written, which is Get Moving, Keep Moving, is really inspired by my return to running at the age of 48, something that I did a lot of as a, as a younger person, and I kind of got disconnected from it for about 20 years. So it was certainly inspired by that, but it's also broadly inspired by my parents, particularly my dad and his philosophy of phys- physical activity. So I had a lot of role modelling around being physically active as a kid, and I sort of held on to that. I have held on to that all my life. And what happened as I was getting back into running was I became really intrigued at what was happening to me physically and also mentally as I started to progress with that. And as I sort of moved along, you know, the first couple of years, I was really enjoying it. But then I started to pick up a couple of injuries. And what I found was that I then had to go off and get some help from health professionals like podiatrists and physios, nutritionists, etc. And every time I went and saw them, I'd have this amazing learning experience. And I'd walk away from their office with my head like popcorn because of all the stuff that I'd just learned about my body, my physiology, my makeup, all that sort of stuff. So I was getting really kind of intrigued by that. But then I also was was finding that I was just enjoying it enormously. So from an emotional perspective, from a a mental well-being perspective, it was wonderful. And I was also finding that all the excuses from yesteryear of the reasons why I didn't run were now simply kind of null and void. Um, there was something about what I was doing that was neutralising all of that. Despite the fact that I was still busy, I was still commuting to Sydney three or four times a week, all those excuses were potentially still there to use, 
but I wasn't using them anymore. So I, I had this kind of thing going on in me, sort of both psychologically and physically, which I just got more and more intrigued about. And so I was reflecting on that experience, and I was also then started to, re- to think about how that might be playing out for others. So I started to think about other people's experiences, and then I s- started to think, you know, there might be a book in this. And so there was this urge to start writing that was really starting to grow in me. And that's when I decided that I would. I would just get going. And so I started by just sort of writing down some of my own experience. But then I found five people in my network who I knew by Facebook and and, and other ways had been increasing the levels of physical activity. And so I reached out to them and I said, hey, look, I'm going to write this book and I'd love to talk to you about your experience. Would you be happy to be part of it? And so they said yes. Uh, and I interviewed them and I, and I wrote up their stories and that's kind of the way the book began. I started with six stories, my story, but then also the stories of Jade, Steve, Bernie, Leanne and Paul and the book kind of grew from there. I love how your physical self was in communication to just how you were feeling and functioning and how you really started to notice that Mm. and how it was giving you such a big uplift. Can you tell us a bit about that 20-year break? Why did you take a break from physical activity? Oh, there's going to be no surprises there. You know, it's one of the things that I really focus on in the book is that it's directed at people who are in their 30s, 40s and 50s, and that was me. You're asking me to talk about that period of my life, which when you think about it is is that really intense productive period of life where you're career building, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're building a family, you're creating a home, you're doing all that sort of stuff, right? And it's really easy when that's the case to, you know, to sort of reprioritize things in a way that kind of almost assigns uh, physical activity to the back burner. And that was certainly the case for me. So, you know, in my 30s, I started my first degree, which is an undergraduate degree in psychology. So I was immediately busy doing that. And I had a bit of academic anxiety and felt that I needed to do well. And so I found that I started to preference that over and above physical activity. Then I got married and had kids and bought a house and all of those things that I think are pretty common experiences for most people create this reprioritization, which takes physical activity and makes it more of a discretionary effort rather than an essential effort. And that was certainly my experience. And coming back to it at the age of 48, yeah, sure, midlife crisis, call it what you like. My approaching 50th birthday was the thing that gave me a kick up the metaphorical bum and got me going again. Well, it's much cheaper than getting a new car, Gordon. Yeah, no, no red Ferrari for me. (laughs) And I love how you highlight that period in our life, 30s, 40s, there is so much going on, family, work, and it can be easy for that physical piece to become a luxury and to become something that we do every now and then. And I love that this book and this conversation is inviting people in to think about how can we make movement not a luxury but Mm. a necessity Mm. for our life and to live well and to age well. So how important is movement to the way that we feel and function? It's absolutely critical. So I think think there's three things about it um, for me that are particularly important and three primary reasons. One is there's a step back and think about it more from an evolutionary point of view. So... You know, evolutionary biology basically tells us that we are uniquely evolved to live an active life, right? And the fact that we don't is one of the reasons why we hear so much about lifestyle diseases, 
Right? We live in these high-convenience societies that don't impel us to move very much if we don't want to. And that's a problem because an important part of being well and feeling well requires us to take on enough physical activity to allow our evolved physiology to make that wellness possible. So it sets up, you know, when we don't move, it sort of sets up this mismatch between what we're capable of doing and what we are doing which has massive implications for how our body systems function, right? We kind of evolved to move and it's sort of set up that way and we don't. Um, the second reason is that we quickly lose our physical capacities if we don't use them. It's a real, you know, use it or lose it kind of situation. And as everybody knows, we experience that physical decline as we age, uh, which is called senescence. And we can't stop senescence or turn it off. There's no pills, there's no cryogenic freezing that, you know, we just, that's a reality we just have to learn to live with, right? And whilst we do lose muscle mass and we lose bone density over time, uh, we do have the ability to be able to slow that to slow that down. We can't, we can't stop it, but we can at least sort of slow it down and maintain a decent level of physical capacity well into our 70s and 80s. Right? And we hear these stories of people in the 70s, 80s and 90s doing amazing things, running marathons, doing ocean swims, doing whatever it is. And I always find it kind of interesting that we find those people oddities or outliers when in actual fact what they're doing is they're just hanging onto a capacity that's there and they're making decisions that are allowing them to utilise that. And so I think that they're really interesting things to reflect on it's one of the reasons i keep on saying to people that healthy aging isn't something that starts in your 60s or 70s it's a lifelong process and it's just that there's a particularly critical period through your 30s 40s and 50s that i think you know where we need to be aware of what we're doing or not doing and try to do what we can because there is a reality there right there's no taking away the reality that i've got children they need to get to school they need to get to tennis i've got a career i've got i mean that's a reality for many people, right? We're not taking that away. What we're saying is let's allow that reprioritization to not be as stark and not be as exclusionary as it, as, as it sometimes is for people around levels of physical activity. So that's the second one, the whole lose it, use it or lose it scenario. And for me, the third one's really around the intrinsic motivation that's locked up in physical activity for people. We are naturally active creatures. And if you want any evidence for that, all you need to do is just drive past, you know, your local playground where kids are playing around having a great time to see the evidence of that. Kids do not need to be reinforced to play. They do it because they love it. Right? And some of our best memories as kids and adolescents are locked up in the things that we've done, the sports we've played, the, you know, all those sorts of things are often part of our best memories. And so I think there's an intrinsic nature to this that I think even as we become older and, and become adults and we perhaps start to become disconnected, I think it's still there. There's an urge to move that's still there for people. And part of the challenge and part of the, uh, the secret of it, I think, is finding ways to tap back into that and reconnect with it such that we can potentially take on forms of physical activity that we're going to find interesting, enjoyable, and are going to have that more intrinsic nature to them rather than just making the first decision or the obvious choices when I decide that, oh, yes, I need to get moving again and I need to lose a few pounds, generally the first things that come to people's mind are, oh, that means going back to the gym or it means playing tennis or it means doing a, a surface. You know, there's, there's high-profile things that, that exist in terms of physical activity. We know a lot about soccer, netball 
football, going to the gym, swimming. But there's so much else that exists within communities that provide people with options. Uh, and I think that's a, a really interesting issue to explore is the full range of physical activity options that exist for people. And that's actually what the follow-up book's about, which I'm currently writing with my 15-year-old son, Riley. Finding movement that works for you, yep. that makes you feel good and makes you feel like you, like alive. I know for myself, I love to be physically fit. And for a good eight years, we lived on a property very far from a gym. So I didn't get to a gym. And since moving to Geelong and being back in a space where I can go to a gym a few days a week, I feel like me. I yeah. feel like me again because my body feels strong. And then also I've had the flu recently and I noticed just 10 days off, like, oh, my arms are sore yeah. doing those few push-ups. Yeah. Like, oh, it's just that constant reminder that if we don't use it, we will lose it. And the longer we leave that gap, it's going to be hard to pick it up again in our 50s and 60s once we feel like we've got time. Absolutely, yeah. And the, the neurotransmitters that are associated with exercise, you know, dopamine, serotonin, all those, all those neurotransmitters, actually the more inactive we become, we start switching those circuits off. This, it can make this inertia that we sometimes feel around getting back into physical activity seem so much harder, right? And it's only once we start to reactivate the, all of those systems that we then start to get those positive kind of cascades and upward spirals that allow it to become an easier thing to do. Yeah, everybody knows that feeling of the first run back after a bit of a period, everything feels heavy and uncomfortable. Yep. And then after about six weeks, like, oh, I'm actually running now. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so why is there such a gap? We know this. Most people listening to this conversation is like, yes, I know I need to exercise. Yes, I need to prioritize it. We know this and yet we don't do anything about it. We don't take the deliberate action. Mm. Why is there this big gap? Look, I could talk for hours about this, Meg, but I, I won't. How about that? Well, the first things I would say about that is just I was just listening to the language that you were using. You used the dreaded E word, exercise. Uh, that's a word that, that I steadfastly try and avoid using. Uh, it is just so loaded with baggage that's unhelpful. So I prefer, I prefer the term physical activity or physical pursuit over that because physical activity all of a sudden starts to enable a whole bunch of other options like incidental exercise for instance and getting people to think about the things that they can do that require physical movement but don't then come with these ideas that are locked up with the word exercise which is it's going to be hard it's going to be painful it's going to be drudgery etc etc right there's just too much that comes along with that word i think for it to be to be helpful so i think a, a simple little reframe around that can, can be can be helpful. That's one part of it. But your question is really about the paradox of exercise, right? We know that exercise, uh, I'm using the exercise word, uh, we know that exercise, physical activity is good, good for us, but yet we don't do it. Why is that, right? We don't act in our own best interests. And it is a curious thing. I think that one of the, one of the reasons for that is a little bit related to what we've been exposed to for long periods of time now as a society. And so what I'm really talking about is health promotion. Now, health promotion is really important. Right? It's really important that people have an awareness of, you know, what are some of the things that are going to allow them to function well. All the guidelines that we get around physical activity, around sleep, around nutrition, 
All that stuff's really, really important. And health agencies have got better and better and better at delivering those messages. Kind of kicked off in the 1970s in Australia with the Life Be In It campaign, which is still one of the most uh, successful campaigns ever run. Uh, and is still, in some, some people's eyes, they have almost a nostalgia about it. You know, there's a fondness for that campaign and lovable norm and the messages that were delivered. And so that kicked off then a sort of a, a series of health promotion events over several decades. My point is we've been exposed to that sort of messaging for a long time. And my feeling is that for a lot of people, if you stopped them in the street and said, define a healthy diet for me, they're probably going to have something to say about five serves of veg and two serves of fruit. Again, my point is that people know tend to have a, a pretty good understanding of what some of these things are because we've been exposed to the messaging for so long. And that can be a good thing and a bad thing. If you get enough of that sort of message, and particularly when it's, it's, a, it's locked up with fear-based messaging, such as if you don't do this, you're going to die because all your risk factors are going to go through the roof, then what can happen as a result of that is people can start to tune out. It can almost start to become almost like a, a, some white noise. The other thing about it too is that health promotion implicitly is a form of prescription. It's essentially health agencies saying, this is what you should do. Not unlike what happens when you go to your doctor, right? And you get a prescription from them. Health promotion messaging is a bit like that. And fundamentally, people don't like being told what to do. So whether they're aware of it or not, the frequency of this, this messaging and the implicit prescriptive nature of it can potentially lead people to kind of go, yeah, 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 I know all that. And what happens then? Maybe not a lot, right? So to come back to your question about the paradox of exercise and why we don't act in our own best interest, I think there are a couple of things that make a difference. And so what I've tried to do, just to bring it back to the book, is I developed as part of the writing process, after I got the six stories together and I started to write them up, what I found was a, a model emerged from the writing. You know, if anybody has a science background out there, it was almost a bit of a grounded theory kind of approach to developing a, a model. It emerged from the writing, it emerged from the stories. And it's the health activation model. And essentially what that's about is simply a process for helping people to work through a simple process which helps them to make a decision about the sorts of physical activity they might really enjoy. A non-prescriptive approach, which is about going, okay, let's take a bit of a look at this. You're an intrinsic, you know, you're a, a naturally active creature. Let's try and find the best point of entry for you back into that more active world, that more active kind of way of living. That's essentially what the, the, the book and the model is about, is giving people a way to do that. And I hadn't seen that before, and I thought there was a bit of a gap. And so, you know, I was happy to, to get in there and, as I say, try and create those fusions of psychology and exercise science. The idea of activation, to me, that sounds exciting. That sounds like there's potential there. Yeah. That's much more exciting than a prescription. Mm. I, well, I think so. I think so. Because ultimately, what are you doing? I was really keen to make sure the model, that what I was writing up and, and the model I was presenting was one that was going to maximise the amount of choice that people had. Because it mean, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, if, if you get to a point where you're making the decisions about what you're going to do and it's about something that you are actually got a shot at enjoying, then do you think you might do a bit more of it? I reckon you might. So that's kind of what, kind of what I was thinking. So far, the feedback's been pretty good. 
And it's really tapping into something you highlighted earlier, and that's that intrinsic motivation. Mm. And I think this is a piece that I'm quite curious about because when it comes to movement, mm. there can be different motivations. And I remember in my earlier years, my motivation was to feel fit, to fit in my jeans, to look good, to look fit, those kinds of things. Yep. But now having young children, my motivation is to remain regulated, to be able to think clearly, to have time and space. Yep. And my motivation's really shifted. And now I feel like I really want to do it and yeah. I need to do it every day because my motivation's also attached to being a good mother, being a good coach, all of those things. But I think that's what happens for people over the course of, you know, over the course of their lives is that their motivations for these things do change. And I think that can be part of the challenge for people too, is to be able to, again, to, to sort of pull back and think about, well, a couple of things. Why am I wanting to get physically active again? What's the per what, what am I trying to create for myself? What's the healthy aging future I want to have? Part of this is about getting active because, you know, you want to be regulated and you want to be doing well. And what are the reasons for that? I think that's a that's a really useful place to go. And I don't think people think about tend to think about it enough. That, that's definitely one thing. The other thing is just to, to recognise too that we never do anything purely for intrinsically motivated reasons, right? In fact, intrinsic motivation is a rare and beautiful thing. There's not much of our behaviour really that is intrinsically motivated. There's a lot of it when we're kids, but we live in a social world. We live in a world that has expectations of us. We need to live in concert with others, all of that sort of stuff which means that most of our behaviour is in some way extrinsically motivated. But we do things for different reasons. And some of those reasons are closer to us and our core values and the things that we're interested in. And some of those things are further from us because we might be doing them for, for money or praise or because someone else really needs us to do it. So there's a continuum of motivation that we can play along. And I think, yeah, it's worth recognising that. There are ways to do that. And certainly the book covers it. But I think the more we can get to a point where we're taking on forms of physical activity or physical pursuits that yeah, speak to us, if you like, connect with things we wholeheartedly believe or really important values or things that are expressions of ourself in the world. So for instance, your desire to be a good mum, I would see as being, you know, a, a, an expression of, of the way you want to be in the world. And so that's a very personal, a very personal thing and probably quite a powerful and enduring motivator of your behaviour. It sure is. So those mornings when it's cold and dark, yeah. I tell myself it's worth the effort because I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old and their intrinsic motivation to be moving all the time, every moment is very high. And so I need to be able to keep up with them. <laughs> Okay, and that's cool, but sometimes that's not enough. You've got that nice um, wellspring of motivation there all locked up in what you just said, but it is cold outside, and uh, and when it's cold outside like this, like it is today and will be tomorrow, it's really easy to roll over, get a few more Zs because a bit more sleep in the bank's not a bad thing either. So my point here is that this is where I think what you do and how you then connect with others can be a real boon. And so I, I think the connection part of all of this is really important. In the second last chapter of the book, I interviewed a master's rowing crew. They're all in their 70s, late 70s. These are the guys who were living the sort of active older life that everybody else I interviewed said that they wanted. So I thought, oh, great way to finish the book. I'll go and talk to these blokes because they're almost voices from the future. 
And so I talked to them about how cool it is to be active at their age. They weren't living, they didn't have perfect health, but gee, they were living actively and having a great time. But one of them, John said to me, he said, you know, a really important part of this, because they're rowers, is the rowing club. And one of the things that I, that I love most about it is that, you know, he didn't use these words, but he's basically it scaffolds his effort. And so he actually used an example and said, you know, when it's raining outside and when it's probably going to be horrible on the water and the alarm goes off, I know I need to get out of bed because Dick and, and Wendy are going to be out in the car and I don't want to let them down. But once I get in the car and I get on the boat and we have our row, I'm glad I did. So my point is that, yeah, we can do it by ourselves and that's fine and plenty of people succeed with that. But it's also worth considering, well, what sort of community could I potentially connect into? Not necessarily a community, but just someone else or, you know, who can be in my ecosystem, my physical activity ecosystem to help me continue to sustain this effort? Because it could be a bad week of weather that undoes three months of great physical activity and all of a sudden you feel like you're back at square one because you're starting to maybe put on a little weight or whatever. I don't know. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes complete sense and that rings really true to me because when we first moved to Geelong, because we'd been living so far from the beach for so long, Mm. I really wanted to swim every Saturday morning. I had this fire in my belly that now we're close to the beach, I'm going to swim all year around. Mm. And so I went down and I swam a few times by myself and I started to get a bit nervous because I actually don't know the water well enough to be swimming by myself, probably not the smartest idea. And I noticed there were some women swimming every Saturday around the time that I was there. And I slowly sort of, it's like, yep. oh, do you, are you here all the time? Like what time? Do you mind if I come with you and got in chatting with them? And these women are in their seventies and eighties and they are remarkable. And that is my motivation. So in the depths of winter now to know that I'm going to see their beautiful smiling faces, not only are we there and in connection together, they're also living a life that I want to live when I'm their age and to see how much joy they get from being in the water. And I I don't think I would be so committed if it was just up to me on a Saturday morning. Absolutely. Meg, at the risk of engaging in a nauseating amount of self-promotion, can I just tell you a little bit about my follow-up book? Oh, I'd love to. Tell me. Okay. So the the follow-up book is halfway written and it's 26 ways to keep moving. And I've I've been writing it with my son and what I realised after after publishing the first book was I think I'd missed an an opportunity. And the opportunity was that I, I didn't really talk a whole lot about what are some of the different options that people have for engaging in more physical activity. And I thought, oh, wow, okay, uh, there could be something here. And so what we decided to do was basically do an A to Z, go through the alphabet and look at fairly randomly, well, in fact, not so randomly, because I purposely chose some, look at 26 different ways to keep moving and not take the surface layer so your tennis, your golf, your, your soccer, your, you know, we, we know about those sports. They're very high profile and they're very easy to find. But what about the next layers down? And so the 26 different sports include things that you might, you might regard as conventional, but also things you might regard as unconventional. So the more conventional stuff would be surfing, kayaking, ocean water swimming, which is what brought it to mind. You've just been talking about that. And the less conventional things are things like extreme ironing, bog snorkeling, and goalball, the only sport that's ever been devised for people with uh, vision impairment. What we've tried to do is bring together quite a diverse 
diverse range of different physical activities. And every chapter has the same structure. It says, uh, this is what it is. So there's a description. What are its origins? What rules are there to to the extent that there are any? And then the major part of each chapter is an interview, a write up of an interview with somebody who is passionate about that physical pursuit. Because what we want to do is give people a lens or or a way of getting into that world and understanding why the person, how they felt when they found fencing and then became a fencer and and really enjoyed that. So that people won't necessarily go out and decide to become a fencer or play Quidditch or do Taekwondo, but they'll thinking in a different way. They'll be thinking about their community differently and scanning and going looking for other options that might give them something better than the gym. Not saying there's anything wrong with the gym, but it might give them something a bit more intrinsically motivating. That's what we're trying to do. Oh, Gordon, you've got to tell us what's extreme ironing. Oh, okay. So extreme ironing is yeah, it's pretty out there. Um, extreme ironing basically is... It's a bit of a free-for-all, so long as it's all about ironing in places, in odd places. So people have, for instance, there's a world record extreme ironing at, what was it, 5,400 metres above sea level, where a a guy or a couple of people, I think, took an, an ironing board and a conventional iron above Everest base camp, set it up and ironed a tea towel. And basically anything goes. So we've had people, there have been people who have ironed underwater. There have been people who have ironed skiing off the back of speedboats. The girl that I interviewed in the book was an extreme ironer, but she's a canyoner. So she does canyoning. And it just so happens she learned about extreme ironing and thought, okay, oh, I could do some of that when I'm canyoning. And so thought it through, took the ironing board, took the iron, has gone and done it probably six or seven times. So I kind of like that because I got to talk about a, a bizarre sport, but at the same time I also got to talk a bit about canyoning because I was reporting her story and her interest in it. That's extreme ironing. So something you could try. Well, I haven't picked up an iron in about a decade. Oh, there you go. And I think that could take my mum's skills to the next level because she's a proficient ironer. So this is the next level. And what you're highlighting to us is what's possible in that real activation to open our minds and our eyes to it doesn't have to be traditional. It doesn't have to be a gym. It doesn't have to be swimming. It can be anything to re-engage with moving our bodies in the way that we're designed and evolved to move. Essentially, I hope what that second book will do is allow people to get much more creative about how they think about it because I think we can start thinking about this sort of stuff in a kind of a stodgy way. And, you know, you just never know when you start to think about it in those terms, you might start to find opportunities that you didn't think that you had. Particularly if you start banding together with people and start becoming part of a community, if things like childminding and, and looking after kids is a concern, then people can start working together to try and open up pockets of time for opportunities to create that balance that we're kind of really talking about. This balance leads us to this idea of our choices matter. If we want to age well, yeah. we really need to prioritise this. As you say, we need to get moving and keep moving. Oh, yeah. What would your advice be to a busy educator, teacher, someone doing the juggle, feeling like I haven't moved in a while, my joggers have got a bit of a few cobwebs, 
Where can we start? The risk of nauseating amounts of self-promotion. That's why I wrote the book, kind of for that sort of a person, you know, because the tendency will be, okay, yeah, I've got the running shoes. I used to run. How about I go and run? Did you enjoy running? Was it actually something that you liked? It's the same question I'd ask somebody about in regards to the gym. I mean, there's a reason why gym memberships often don't get utilised. You know, they become quite expensive. People pay a gym membership and then they go three times uh, and then it drops off. I mean, there's something going on there, if that's part of your experience, that's probably worth questioning. This is why, you know, I would say a starting point, not a bad one, is to go, okay, if you want to become more physically active and if you want to sustain it for the next 10, 25 years, then it might be worth a couple of weeks thinking, a little bit of, you know, introspection, a little bit of reflection, start to sort of think about what the possibilities might be and set yourself up for success in that way by doing a little bit of the the sort of the, the head work before you start to do the leg work. I love that one. That just came to me. I'm gonna. I've got to write that down. Could be your new tagline. I think it might be. Jeepers, that was that. That came out all right, didn't it? Hey. Yeah, it's amazing what happens when we get talking and get moving. (laughs) Exactly. But no, seriously, that's that's what I think is 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 a really good starting point. Beyond that. Setting some realistic expectations. So I got a uh, an executive client at the moment. We've been talking about this. He he knows he knows that he needs to improve his levels of physical activity, and he really wants to do that. And he's been doing really well with it. He's reconnected with his love of cycling, right? So he knows he loves to cycle. He's looking for all the opportunities he can do it. Cycling with his son, you know, going with him to school, that kind of thing. Well, when we first started talking about it and he started to get this inkling that maybe cycling was going to be it, we then talked about fairly quickly after because he's a high-achievement guy, right? I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's well motivated. He likes to achieve. So we quickly got on to the question of what's going to be manageable. Anyway, lo and behold, about three days later, he's gone off and done a a 40K bike ride off a base of very little. Um, Of course, if that's going to happen, you're going to have some delayed onset muscle soreness, which, you know, is potentially going to lead you to think, oh, geez, that hurt a bit much. I'm not sure if I want to do that again. Uh, So, you know, too much too soon can be a demotivating thing. So I think we do have to remember that if we're going to get moving, then we have to reintroduce our body to it. We reacquaint our muscles and and ligaments and tendons with all the things that we are doing. Otherwise it will hurt and it will be more painful than it needs to be. Yes, such good advice to think about. And I love that we can bring in our families on the journey and use it as an opportunity to connect as well as move. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And this is what it does, I think. This is one of the great things about, you know, engaging physical activity is it opens up a whole lot of opportunities for social connection. And that's what we're here to do, isn't it? We're here to thrive together, to really be together in connection. And I love that science around that we can feel so much more connected with someone when our physiology is matching. Mm. So when we're out for a walk or we're out for a ride, we just feel connected because we're in that same state. So to wrap up this incredible conversation, Gordon, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for it? Oh, oh, throw that challenge down. (laughs) Um, I am inspired by... I am inspired by um, anybody who doesn't let their age limit their choices. When life feels hard. I go for a run. I do. I absolutely do. I go for a run and it helps every time. 
Bar none. Life seems to make sense after a run. Lots of things can make sense during a run and after a run. The number of times I've been for a run and had a good idea um, or I've solved a problem that I was wrestling with and then, you know, halfway through and then you want to run home a little quicker so you don't forget and you can write it down. An underrated skill is? I think an underrated skill is anticipation. Ability to be able to anticipate uh, not only what you need yourself but also what others need. I think actually anticipation in my experience was one of the things that was really useful in my my marriage, uh, particularly when, early on with kids when, when Anita was doing a lot of, you know, the primary caregiving for, for our kids. I found that I spent a lot of time trying to anticipate what could I do next, what would be the most useful. Sometimes I got that wrong, but a lot of the time I think I got it right, and it helps. So I think anticipation actually when it comes to thinking about social relationships and social wellbeing is, is a good one. And I am looking forward to... Oh, I'm looking forward to getting the second book out. Actually, I can't wait to get the second book out. Um, I just We're having such a great time putting it together and writing it with my son is just a joy. And, yeah, so really, really looking forward to that. Oh, that is so cool. And it gives me a little bit of hope as I've got my three- and five-year-old running circles around me that one day we could be together writing a book. Who knows? <laughs> they grow up. Yeah, yeah well, I floated the idea. He didn't hesitate. And it's just been great. We've got a great little system going. He's a good writer anyway, um, so it's a legitimate partnership and he's interested in the in the material as much as I am. Yeah, so we're, we're having a great time. Gordon, thanks so much for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. I have enjoyed it immensely, Meg. Thank you very much for having me. I hope this conversation has inspired you to make movement a part of your everyday life. Gordon's book, Get Moving, Keep Moving, is available at bookstores. And to learn more about the ways you can work with Gordon, visit his website, healthyagingproject.com. Before you go, I would like to invite you to complete two sentences. Number one, from this conversation, I want to remember, what is your pearl? Number two, the action I am going to take in the next 24 hours to support my well-being is... If you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes and Spotify and share with your family, friends and colleagues. To learn more about how I can help you thrive, visit openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event or make an inquiry about my game-changing workplace wellbeing program, Thrive by Design. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 38. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.